Hello one and all and welcome yet again to another episode of Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. I am your host Dan Fuller joined yet again by my main man Ant Hurley. How you doing Ant? Good evening. Nice to be here late at night with you again. <laughs> Always seems to be late at night. I don't know. I don't know why that is. Yeah, yeah. Nothing to do with laziness. <laughs> <laughs> very much uh happy may day everybody first of may beltane the traditional gaelic summer celebration which translates as lucky fire um named after the pagan god bell who was indeed the god of fire um so in that spirit uh big up everyone and who have we got as a guest today today we are joined by the wonderful Maria Cuervo of Hellebore Folk Horror Magazine, who are just putting out some amazing stuff and have just launched issue two this week. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think it's official releases today, but I think they were sending it out like earlier this week. So um, they should they should be arriving on people's front doorsteps very soon. Yeah, it's a wicked conversation that like goes from myth and horror and like fascism to like kids stories and kind of everything in between it's 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 a really uh far out freaky episode but uh it's kind of very close to our hearts i think for sure it was awesome um do you have anything more interesting to say and i i i told you to work on content and like features <laughs> but no nothing i've come up with nothing again yeah i'm empty-handed yeah, i come to you again empty-handed <laughs> Well, you'll be pleased to know that I also have nothing else to say. Well, I think the conversation is going to do all the talking, and more importantly, Maria will do all the talking. Before we recorded, we were like, just shut up and let her talk. Um, (laughs) Yeah, look, just don't say much. Don't say anything. (laughs) All right, guys, uh, so I'm going to pass over to Maria, joined humbly by myself and Ant. Good afternoon. Today I am joined by the editor of Hellebore, uh, Maria Cuervo. Welcome, Maria. Hello. Uh, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here with you. Um, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, it's um, a weird time. Um, but yeah, we're yeah. doing fine. We're just at home and um, I've just received the, the, the box of um, Hellebore 2. Oh, so it's been quite an, an exciting afternoon. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, I should also add that we're also joined by Anthony Hurley, my partner in crime. Good afternoon. Yeah, well, let's get some discussion going. So Hellebore is a amazing magazine that we're all massive fans of at the shop that deals with all things folk horror and yeah maria i was wondering if you could we could kick off the discussion with just a little explanation about hellebore how like how you came about making the decision to make the magazine what it's about and kind of what the ethos behind what you guys are doing is yeah so i I wanted to do something physical i wanted to create a physical object because i think that we spend a long time reading on screens and on our phones and everything kindles all kinds of stuff but um i still feel really drawn to beautiful objects and i've i usually buy quite a lot of books and I, i wanted to create something that was you know that was really beautiful and that was based on the themes that i enjoy 
enjoy and that I really like. And mm-hmm. looking around, I couldn't see anything that was quite like Hellebore. And I thought, why not? Why not this? Mm-hmm. And I know people who are writers and academics who are really interested in these themes. And I knew Nathaniel, the designer as well. So I just brought all of this together and yeah, Hollywood was born. I'm not sure if I was expecting it to be like this, you know, suddenly I've got a magazine and I'm responsible for it, but um, I'm really happy with it. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly beautifully designed. The whole aesthetic of it is just something that, especially our customers at the shop, have just responded incredibly positively to. So, talking a little bit about content, so you, the, you, there are these themes you said that you and a collection of like friends and colleagues are drawn to. I, I think this can be described under the umbrella of folk horror. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's an umbrella term, as you've said. Yeah, it's been very much inspired by British folk horror because everybody talks about what, what is folk horror and, mm. and lots of people are trying to describe it. And I think probably uh, the person who's brought the, the best description of folk horror is probably Alan Scobell, who wrote the book Folk Horror, which is an essay that came out a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So lots of people reference his work. Also the people from Folk Horror Revival, and they have their own, yeah, small print, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, which is Weird Harvest Press. And so these people have... Have done a really good job of describing what folk horror is and you know just talking about the uh, cultural references about it so. mm-hmm. and what does it mean to you specifically to me i i wanted to explore that and you know that's why i wrote the article in the first mm-hmm. issue because i wanted to explore what my favorite part of folk horror was mm-hmm. To me, it comes from James Fraser and Margaret Murray. So it's a a very Victorian subgenre. It has a lot of Victorian ideas about people who live in the countryside Mm. acting like savages, basically, which is, you know, which is a very Victorian idea. And James Fraser, all the ideas in The the Golden Bough Mm -hmm. were explored in The Wicker Man, which is the epitome of folk horror, I think. Yeah. And at the same time, Margaret Murray, with her witch cult hypothesis, um, there's another branch there, which is about witchcraft and Satanism and, you know, again, cults that survive, that are secret after many years. And those yeah. those two branches are my favorite. Yeah. And then for some people, anything which is a bit, you know, inspired by folklore can also be folk horror. But I'm not so much interested in those as I am interested in, in the ones that come from Murray and, and Fraser for some reason. Maybe because I, I really like Victorian fiction so that's probably why yeah (laughs) just to bring our listeners up to speed james fraser who maria was talking about wrote a book called the golden bow that's Mm -hmm. good is that is that right yeah yeah was that late oh that was late 19th century 1890 i think could you tell us a little bit about the golden bow and kind of what yeah. he was talking about in in that book. So the the Golden Bow is 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 a really ambitious work about anthropology that uh, Fraser put together, and uh, he examined lots of traditions from all over the world. Basically, he corresponded with lots of people who lived everywhere in in the empire, mostly in the British Empire, mm-hmm. and he collected all these traditions and he arranged them into different groups. Basically, he said that. There was there was a correlation between these traditions and the traditions that are still observed or were still observed in Europe or mm. in the British Isles, mm-hmm. and you know some of them were you know involved human sacrifice, for example. So he was saying that things like John Barleycorn is dead, you know that um, folk song and that 
tradition, which, um, you know, in some places in Britain, you can sacrifice the spirit of the corn. Yeah. They were based on a former ritual, you know, many yeah. years, many, many centuries ago, that in, in which people were actually sacrificed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that is very the Wicca man. Mm. And um, this is only one example, but there were many others. And yeah. uh, I just think it's fascinating because, I mean, obviously his theories have been disproved by academia now. Yeah. And it's just a Victorian fantasy. But I think that is fascinating because he's looking at a sort of common origin within the myth and within yeah. the rituals. So yeah. that's what really fascinates me. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask specifically about this this concept you mentioned, uh, or that uh, I guess he mentions in the book, the idea of, and I'm going to pronounce terrible Latin here, um, <laughs> Rex Nemorensis. Rex mm-hmm. Nemorensis? That's right. The idea, uh, I, I, if you could expand a little bit on that and what that meant, that would be wonderful. So, um, yeah, the story of the Rex Nemorensis was based on, on some mythology coming from a um, forest in Italy mm-hmm. near the a lake that was called Lake Nemic. Basically, it was a ritual by which a priest was going to sacrifice another priest and take his place. Mm-hmm. And and so it was almost like, I, I like this because it, it, it's almost, well, it's inevitable. It's very fatalistic. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's it's constant repetition of the same thing. And it is, you know, I find it fascinating. It's beautiful and it's full of beauty and horror or beauty and terror. Yeah. And to Towards the end of the Golden Bough, Fraser goes back to this little forest and talks about the Rex Nemorensis again, and it serves as a sort of, it serves like a bookend. So um, he uses it at the beginning and at the end, and he talks about how, you know, everything, every story really is the same story, and there's something that ties all the mythologies together. Yeah, and this is like a common theme kind of expanded, I guess, maybe just over half a century later by uh, like Joseph Campbell in The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Yeah. This, yeah, this idea that there's this kind of like common mythic template, well, like, as you say, has been largely discredited, is nonetheless quite a compelling one, especially in an artistic or symbolic sense, I, I, I guess you could say, which I think brings us quite neatly onto Margaret Murray and the witch cult. Yes, that's right. I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about her and her work. Yeah, Margaret Murray was a really fascinating character. I mean, she did quite a lot of, well, she did mummy and wrappings. I don't know if quite a lot or not, but she was an Egyptologist, actually, and she went to Egypt and she travelled and stuff. But then because of the war, mm-hmm. she decided that she needed a different expertise because mm-hmm. um, she couldn't go to Egypt. And so she sort of specialised in yeah witchcraft and she put together her witch cult hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was looking at folklore and she came up with this hypothesis by which there were some um, surviving cult of witches that were worshipping really a horn god and a goddess of fertility. This cult had been demonised by the Christian church mm-hmm. and um, they had assimilated the horn god with the figure of the devil. Mm-hmm. And so from Murray, we have a lot of um, writers who, you know, starting with Lovecraft, Lovecraft was inspired by Murray and, and Fraser because Murray was a Fraserite as well. Or mm-hmm. I think that's the right word, Fraserite or Fraserian. That's it. <laughs> Sorry. Murray was a Fraserian. So a lot of f- weird fiction from the time came, comes from these ideas from Fraser and from Murray. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have Lovecraft talking about, you know, sinister cults of people worshipping all gods. Yeah. Which is essentially what Margaret Murray had talked about. And obviously also Wicca. Yeah. 
the religion was also heavily inspired by by Margaret Murray as Ronald Hutton, who was our first interviewee, yeah. uh, discussing the interview. So, yeah. So the, the, this is a really interesting kind of idea that emerges, as you describe it, in the essay is a particularly kind of late Victorian and kind of Edwardian context where I guess you could say the discourse of main society was one of complete forward momentum, progress, civilization, and the idea, and this this is a wonderful quote from Eleanor Scott that you uh, used from her Dory Randall's Round, there are certainly some very odd things done in out-of-the-way places. This kind of fear, I guess, that comes from this educated, urbanised uh, bourgeois, that there is something dark and scary and unknowable happening in the countryside is kind of very interesting and and, and as you describe it again is it's very connected to gothic fiction and the kind of anxieties around technology so i wonder if you could talk a little bit about the connection to folk horror to gothic literature a little bit um yeah i think that a lot of this comes from um darwin and the impact that it had on society because if you if you imagine yourself as a victorian and then suddenly you know, you, you think about apes and how related you are to apes and to anything, you know, before then. Mm-hmm. Um, that must have been such a terrible shock. <laughs> it had to be sublimed in, in, through something. And I think that fiction served that purpose. So people were really, suddenly really worried about, you know, what what does it mean to be human? Are we monsters? And then you get Dr. Jekyll and mm-hmm. Mr. Hyde and you get Dorian Gray as well, which are, you know, the split self and, and, and that is very gothic. Yeah. And I think that folk horror as well has that dimension of, of being terrified of you know what what it means to be human where are the boundaries what does nature mean to us and um how do we connect with nature and and all kinds of questions one of the things that is very recurring in folk horror is this sort of almost unscapable ritual that you know that you know it's it's, it's not going to be it's not going to have mm. a happy ending even though you might try to escape it it's almost like a gothic curse you can't yeah and so that sort of ritual from folk horror is often connected to landscape or to certain practices that people who live in that landscape must do in order to preserve the natural order. Yeah. So there's something very gothic there because you're trying to fight the past, but <laughs> you, you can't really do it uh, because it's bigger than you, it's larger than you. So that, mm. I think that's where the connection is. And to return to the Wicker Man, the folk horror protagonist becomes a prisoner of the landscape and these rituals. The pattern that is being replicated is dictated by the seasons, by the fertility of the land. It is in the soil itself and in the landscape, and it demands blood. This idea of, like, inescapability is just seeps through the Wicker Man, um, not the Nicholas Cage remake the um the the nineteen sixties original. Yeah. And yeah, this idea of an inevitability of uh, the soil and the idea, I suppose, of in spite of the fact they were making progress, that there were kind of primordial forces existing in places that technology or progress or civilization could not 
penetrate is is an incredibly powerful one and i just loved how you drew together this sort of genealogy of where these ideas come from and gave us this sort of historic context to something which can in some places be reduced as you say to kind of mere kind of aesthetic parlance you know like it's it's a fashion look you know it's something that someone wears for the summer but kind of moving on from this genealogy i'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on now because I guess you could call it the second folk horror revival what's going on now the first one happening in the 60s and I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about what's drawing people back Yeah, um, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think that partly is to do with our relationship with the environment and with the land and with our traditions and, yeah, our connection with our ancestors, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I I don't know why this is appealing right now, but I think, Mm -hmm. you know, part of it could could be that. Part of it could be... You know, there's also a folklore revival at the same time, and I'm I'm thinking about Folklore Thursday yeah, on on yeah. Twitter, which you might follow. So a lot of people are drawn to folklore as well, not just the horror side, but just folklore yeah. in general. Yeah, the horror side, I think, is because we live in very anxious times. Uh huh. We need um we need escape, don't we? And and yeah, I don't know. I just think that horror speaks to that side. Partly it's because people are also drawn to things like the occult and in a sort of political way almost. Because, you know, activists who are using witchcraft at the moment and, um, you know, the Church of Satan in the US as well. um, They're just being politically active as well. So... Uh, yeah, that statue that they they put up was just a hilarious and amazing publicity stunt. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, for those who don't know, they campaigned to have because I, there was a I can't remember what state it was in, but there was a a law about a religious tolerance and freedom which uh, went back to kind of days of Catholics and Protestants and so forth being persecuted, and they were trying to use this uh, law to lobby to get a statue of Baphomet. In erected outside the state legislature um, <laughs> which is just really funny look it up if you search satan statue america um it will it will come up <laughs> um, but no that that's really interesting what you say about this kind of anxiety that we're having now in a sense there's almost comfort in the horror in folk horror i i think in in as much as that like if you conduct these rituals then you will be okay. You know, you yeah. might ha- you might have to sacrifice yourself, but the community <laughs> will be okay. You know, there's this. It's it's almost like an acknowledgement, and this ties into you know can tie into postmodernism and this real anxiety we're having now. But yeah, it's almost like there's this comfort that yeah. you can make some kind of contact with the other, the unknowable, the sublime, and kind of placate it and keep it at bay a little bit. Yeah. I think folk horror has a very a religious component that mm-hmm. um, that is very important, and it ties in with with very ancient beliefs as well. I mean, we're, we've been working on on Pan, on the cult of the great god Pan, mm-hmm. for the second issue, and I did study Greek and Latin when I went to high school a million years ago. Mm-hmm. I was fascinated by Greek mythology, and I think that some people may have the impression that the Greeks, uh, with their classic gods, were living in a very orderly world, but 
that wasn't really the case. You have pretty wild beliefs there yeah. and pretty crazy rituals and all the mysteric religions and things like that. Actually, in the 60s, there was a lot of this going on as well with um, well, with Robert Graves, um, his book, The White Goddess. Yeah, I've literally got it on my desk right now. Really? Cool. <laughs> yeah. There we go. It's all connected. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of tie-ins with with the classic past as well, and with you know, obviously, yeah. all kinds of things. But there's definitely this religious dimension to folk horror that I find really interesting. So to me, it goes beyond. You know, lots of people thought, think about you know Germanic gods and. A, a certain kind of aesthetics but to me yeah. it goes beyond and that's the part that i'm really interested in awesome yeah i um i read this book before christmas called ghostland by edward parnell it's like a kind of grief memoir that focuses around his passion for folk horror and he goes around the uk kind of searching out all these sites and works that part of yeah, his study of folk horror but um there are two things one is yeah i was going to ask actually if you could expand a bit on the kind of classical influence on folk horror like i read this story by algernon blackwood called the willows i think it was written in 1907 about two men that kind of float down the danube and they get marooned on this island and there's this kind of constant whining whistling around them and at one point the protagonist sort of ruminates about roman armies that might haunt the Danube and then Dan actually introduced me to this book The Hill of Dreams by Arthur Mackham which is all about the kind of Roman forts in Wales and kind of hauntings of those yeah I was just wondering if you could expand on that kind of influence of the classical world on folk horror yeah so I'm thinking now because probably I, I, uh, part of the reason why I'm really interested in this is a book called The King Must Die by Mary Renault which my parents had when I was a teenager and I read it and I became fascinated and this this had to do with the legend of the Minotaur of Theseus and the Minotaur so if you think about the, the myth of the Minotaur there was supposed mm-hmm. to be a sacrifice every seven years I believe. And so Theseus was one of the people who was going to be sacrificed and taken to the labyrinth and basically eaten by the Minotaur. But um, Ariadne was the one who helped him get of the of the labyrinth. And so this sort of ritual sacrifice is present in, in lots of ancient religions and, you know, in a lot of Greek myths and in Mesopotamian myths as well, mm. or, you know, Egypt and lots of different places in the ancient world. And there were lots of rituals in Greece, Dionysian mysteries where people actually became wild for a certain period of times and, and did things that might have been quite unspeakable for the rest of you know yeah. for the rest of yeah. the year, if that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, rituals like this are really very much folk horror. Mm. Just um, sticking with myth, um, I remember reading a, an essay called Myth and Education by Ted Hughes, where he talks about how important uh, mythology is in the education of children. He calls myths blueprints for imagination and that they're living things, not just things forgotten in textbook, but they're kind of um, sources of life. And I just wondered where you see the role of myth and folk horror for kind of children now, because when I grew up, I used to read this Susan Cooper trilogy, The Dark is Rising, and it was just an amazing series of books for children about old British myth and kind of ghost stories. But so often I tried to sell people books for children that aren't super dark, but might have these elements in, but they, from my Mm. experience, selling books in the shop tend to shy away from these kind of things now for children. Where do you see it? Yeah, I I know that because I've got got friends who work in bookshops too, and um, if you try to give them something Mm. that, you know, we would have been okay reading, our generation, I mean then they say, no, this is not suitable for children. I, you know, 
it's too mm-hmm. dangerous or whatever, you know. I see that a lot. I mean, I've got a three-year-old boy and um, mm-hmm. I can't wait to show him all this stuff, but obviously he's three, so he might be a bit too young. I mean, obviously as a parent, you don't want to traumatise your kid, but um, it's quite quite a healthy thing to do. I think that breathing things that might scare you in some ways. Yeah. I mean, fairy tales are scary <laughs> and and there's nothing mm. wrong i mean children have been reading fairy tales for for a very long time and there's nothing wrong with that i don't think i think it's yeah. very healthy to confront your fears in that way and uh, myths yeah. are obviously absolutely terrifying some of them and i think but it is very helpful because obviously you are you know you're dealing with a monster in a safe space in the space of your imagination i'm brought to mind of ursula kayla Gwynn's the Wizard of Earthsea, I mean, the whole mythology of this book series is couched in kind of folk horror or, or, or kind of magic that is kind of intuitive rather than scholarly. And, you know, the whole book is about being chased by a shadow that is, and spoiler alert, closure is, if you haven't read it, um, being chased by a shadow that is essentially yourself. Um, and this is a book written for children. And as you say, I think the fear is something that we all navigate as adults. I think that one of the wonderful functions of myth and folk tales and so on and fairy stories is this kind of teaching you to navigate myth. I, I remember finding this collection of Russian stories that they, they taught kids, and I, I, I won't repeat it here, but they were just absolutely <laughs> brutal. Um, <laughs> um, now, I, I, I kind of wanted to move the discussion on a little bit outside the UK so Maria you're from Spain originally right yeah I'm led to believe I don't know directly I'm led to believe that there's quite a strong tradition of kind of folk kind of horror type stuff in Spain as well I was wondering if you if if you could kind of give a maybe slightly pan-European light on uh, some of these stories that we're told and are interested in yeah, well, I'm a massive Anglophile. That's why I'm here in England because yeah. I'm obsessed with England. I've I've always been. So I don't I don't really you know I don't really know that much about um mm-hmm. stuff in in Spain. I know a little bit, but um mm-hmm. from my understanding, I think that I, I read the other day an article about Galicia Noir being uh, hot. Galicia is an, a region in the northwest of Spain, uh-huh. and it's kind of our mm-hmm. Cornwall in a way because um you know it's quite ancient and mythical, and there are lots yeah. of folk beliefs like oh this sorry i'm just going going off on a tangent but um there's a really amazing tradition the santa compaña which is a, the holy company which is very very much related to the wild hunt mm-hmm. so spirits of the dead uh turning up in the middle of the night and um mm-hmm. dragging you to the realm of the dead basically or to the purgatory Anyway, so uh, Galicia has this, I mentioned, also traditionally a, a land where witches were living and um, a land of superstitious people, basically. So at the moment, apparently, there's a little bit of a, a, a new sub-genre, <laughs> which is yeah. Galicia Noir, which is very, very much about crime, yeah. but crime inspired by some sort of folkloric belief which is a little bit folk horror-y, I suppose and that's happening now there are quite a lot of tv series I, I, tr- I tried to watch one the other day there are quite a lot of those um I believe there are some about the Basque country on Netflix but I can't remember the name but there, there's there's some of that going on mm-hmm. maybe not in the same way that mm. in England it's sort of mixed with 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 another genre like uh crime for example in this case well we'll certainly try and do some digging and see if uh any 
the better yeah. it's going to be. And yeah. as David said, uh, reenchantment is resistance, which is the motto of Hookland, the imaginary territory that he that he tweets about and and works yeah. on. And reenchantment is resistance. It, it also ties in with um, with um, different futures. You know, we we can imagine different futures. This ties in with obviously things like capitalist realism and concepts that you are probably familiar with. Um, we can imagine alternatives to capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not you know it's not the ultimate ideology. We can you know there are things, and I think that COVID um, and our current situation is proving this. Yeah, but, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Exactly. So we can we can do other things, but it's very important that we are vocal about this and that we basically have zero tolerance with Nazis mm. in, in yeah. this field. And yeah. that's why I wanted to invite David and that's why I wrote the editorial mm. about that. Yeah. I think it's resonated with, with some of our readers or with most of mm. our readers anyway. This is a really, I don't know if lovely is quite the right word, but it's a lovely sentiment in as much that you know, fascism is about power and removing any kind of personal agency, whereas whether you're talking about uh, dancing around the maypole, whether you're talking about going on a walk or, or painting a vista, it's, this is about agency, it's about community, it's about collaboration, and it's about, it's about uh, transgression. Yes, well. you're absolutely right. You know, so yeah, I thought I kind of wanted to mention that because it is a strange line, and I think we're all kind of having the kind of having to walk it. You're you're right. You're very right. You, you mentioned the transgression there, and I'm I'm mm-hmm. thinking about um low magic, you know, um yeah. which is as opposed to um high magic, mm-hmm. and people like uh, the cunning folk and these and the witches really. I mean, all these people who appear in folk horror Mm -hmm. they they were outsiders they weren't people in power and i Mm -hmm. think that's also a really important thing to remember with the wild gods issue which which is issue two we wanted Mm -hmm. to we wanted to discuss this we wanted to talk about how uh pagan gods or um paganism and and these wild gods yeah become and a sort of antidote to conventions and why a lot of people in history have used these gods you know, yeah. it could be anything. It could be sexual liberation, rebellion in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can use it in many ways. People who follow Hellebore and who have bought Hellebore, I can see a lot of people who are alternative, let's call it that way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah They're yeah. not quite conventional. And I'm really, really, really pleased with it because yeah. they're the best people. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So... Talking of issue two, and I am going to let out my inner fanboy here, uh, unashamedly. <laughs> I, I understand you've got an interview with the bard of Northampton himself, Alan Moore, coming yes. out of issue two, right? We do, we do, yes. Um, John Repian interviewed him, and it's a wonderful interview. You'll oh, see wow. when you get the issue. It's really, really wonderful. When, when's issue two coming? May 1st? Yeah, well, we're starting shipping literally now because I just got the, the the boxes this afternoon. Yeah. So it's just a matter of packing and posting and all that stuff. Awesome. Awesome. Um, awesome. Yeah, 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 it's coming. It's coming. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, on that note, Maria, I... Well, thank you so much for coming on board. Like, um, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, when the shop reopens, issue two will definitely be flying off our shelves, I'm sure. And uh, <laughs> thank you. I can't wait to receive my copy. <laughs> um, thank you very much. So yeah, thanks for coming on the show and have a have a great 
Have a great day. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, guys. Keep safe and, um, yeah, speak soon. Thanks, Maria. Cheers. Well, I think that's quite enough heavy talk from now. Thanks to Maria for joining us on the show. She's once again put us to shame. <laughs> it's great. Kind of when I listen back to these things, I can hear the kind of awe in our voice. We just kind of yeah, yeah, don't have much to add. I feel like we get on like really cool people, and like we're all like losers who are just like so. Uh... <laughs> just really, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> just get a bit quiet. Yeah. Oh dear. All right. Well, basically, I can't tell you what's coming up next because I've got like seven episodes worth of content on my hard drive, and it depends on my basically how lazy I am. So uh, I can't give you that information. Uh, but what I can say is that we have loads of awesome interviews in the bag, and they will be coming out to you very soon. Mayday thoughts, Ant? Any any messages? Any shout outs you want to give? Um, shout out to everyone who's dancing around fires right now and um, deep in the strange and weird and wonderful parts of the world. Yeah, big up, big up to those people. And big up to the people who are stuck in like shitty flats as well. That must suck. Respect for keeping the rules of lockdown. Yeah, and basically anyone listening to this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like and subscribe, guys. Like and subscribe. <laughs> we love you. We love you. Cheers, everyone. Peace out. Thank you. Mwah. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were Dan Fuller and Ant Hurley, joined by Maria Cuevo. This show was produced by Dan Fuller with music by Dear Brother. Uh, happy May Day, happy Beltane, workers of the world unite and light the fires.